Let's open our Bibles. Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read from verse 21. This is our second to last time to look at the Sermon on the Mount, I think. Page 1431, if you're opening the Brown Bible. Matthew 7, verse 21. We're just going to read three verses. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, much as last week, it's an overwhelmingly negative passage. The temptation is always to try and sort of gloss over this sort of thing a little bit. And um, I'm also slightly nervous when I preach on something like this because the last thing I want to do is sow seeds of doubt in the minds of you who, are, who love Jesus that maybe there's something wrong that something's missing. But it's such a vitally important thing for us to look at. It's so incredibly important. I'll tell you why. The problem here is about people who think that they're Christians, but aren't. I know there's a lot of areas in life where you can think one thing about yourself and it not necessarily be true. So you might think that you're a wonderful singer and it may not correspond to reality. We've seen and met many people who kind of fit that um, description. Or you may think that you're wonderful at this particular job and actually you're very, very bad at it or something like that. But obviously when it comes to an issue like this one, when Jesus is talking to us all directly, you can understand that he would have said the same thing if he were looking you in the eyes. The stakes are so much higher, aren't they? Because he's not talking about something trivial. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about your soul. He's talking about your walk with God. Now I've heard that the statistic that something like 2 billion people in the world today who identify as Christian. And I don't want to sound cynical, but I don't think that that number really corresponds to reality, does it? I doubt that all those people are those who who Jesus knows and know Jesus. I think some of those people are the ones that he would be speaking to in this passage. So it couldn't, there couldn't be a more important thing, could there, than for people to really look at themselves in the light of what Christ is saying and understand whether they're engaging in what is really here a kind of self-deception. You see how the way Jesus describes their appeal to him, it says that on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that and the other thing? So these people clearly think one thing about themselves. And Jesus says it doesn't correspond to reality. It just isn't true of them. Self-deception, by its very nature, means that you don't realize that it's not true of you. And that is why Christ wants us always to be mindful of what he's saying and to, to register this, this warning with, with real seriousness and care. Why are they mistaken? Let me just begin with that question. There are two reasons. One is because 
they, they think that words are enough. So it says in the first verse, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And he's describing there how a person can sort of make a confession of faith. And for that confession not to be enough, that it doesn't necessarily prove anything about them. Romans 10 says how important a confession is. It says, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And he goes on, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it seems like an absolute, but obviously Jesus has made an, an exception here for those who call on the name of the Lord. But for whatever reason, that isn't enough. You know it from day-to-day life, don't you? That many people say one thing, but their heart or the reality or the truth doesn't align with what they're saying. And I don't think this is just a Christian problem. I'm sure all of us have friends from all kinds of religions and walks of life where what they say doesn't match with how they live. Secularists who say, I believe in doing no harm, and yet obviously in the day-to-day life will often do things that are hurtful to others. Muslims, I've had Muslim friends who uh, would claim to be Muslim but film virtually no pang of conscience doing things which are, are absolutely against the tenets of Islam. We could go on and on and on. So it's not purely a Christian issue here. It's just part of the human condition that we like to say one thing and often that doesn't correspond to the reality in our hearts. Lord, Lord, they say. And Jesus says, I don't know you. That's one thing. Words are not enough. Of course means you can't necessarily take your own word for it. That's a sobering thing. Here's another reason. Results are not enough. You see how these people, they appeal to what they've done. They said, we prophesied, we've exorcised, which is to cast out demons, and we have done all these miracles. Now, if you or I were to meet such a person, we would automatically assume they're the most extraordinary Christian you've ever met. Their prophetic gift is off the charts. They pray for the sick, they get healed. They've cast out demons and people have been changed and transformed. You think, well, they've done all these things. Surely, surely this person loves Jesus. And Christ is saying here, actually, the two things don't necessarily go together. One of the reasons is that in the Bible, God uses all kinds of people even animals as agents to do his will when they're not even necessarily his people. There's a man called Cyrus. If you know anyone, I'm guessing, I won't even ask. If you read the book of Isaiah, (laughs) um, there's a man called Cyrus who's an emperor who does God's bidding. He's an emperor, I think it's it's either the Persian or Babylonian empire. He does God's will, but he's not one of God's people. Just to make it even more obvious, there's a donkey that speaks prophetically. Balaam's ass, it's called. And, and somehow opens its mouth in kind of Shrek moment and starts speaking um, prophetically. And you think, well, is that donkey saved? Of course not. Just God's using that donkey for his purposes. Now, the point is here, just because God does something through a person doesn't necessarily mean that that person belongs to him. You know, if I was to rifle through your bags after the service today and take one of your sets of keys, let myself into your house, eat all your porridge, and then sleep in your bed, you might uh, obviously have a rightful complaint against me. Because even if I have the key, which is to say I've got power, it doesn't mean I have any rightful ownership to your things. 
And Jesus is saying, just because you can call on my name, the name which is above every name, and you can even cast out demons by that name, it doesn't mean that you have any rightful relationship with me. Now, it's very scary, isn't it, when you really consider this, that a lot of people who think they're Christians are not. And Christ is saying that there'll be some surprises. That when we are in heaven, when we are with Christ, there'll be people missing who we thought would be there. And obviously, I think also people there who we never thought would be. I want us to wrestle with this then. What is it that Christ wants of us? How do we know that we're saved? Before we get into that, I just need to say one comment though. Jesus makes himself the dividing line in this passage. On that day, he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Verse 22. That day is shorthand most of the time for the final day. What Jesus his prediction that he is the judge before whom all of humanity must give account. I know that of all the things that we say that are controversial, and we say many as Christians, we seem to have a way with things of uh, going up against the culture. This one is probably the hardest one because it denies everything, the spirit of what all our friends believe, which is that basically all ideas are equally valid. And Jesus says, no, You can debate all day long and compare this religion with that religion and that philosophy with that way of life, their relative merits and demerits, which is better, which is worse. Ultimately, all of your talk counts for nothing because only one thing matters. How are you in relation to him? It's so simple. It's so clear. It's so black and white. Here's a question then. What is Jesus looking for in your life? I think the answer comes in the last verse when he says, Then I will declare to them, and he says three things. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I think those three things correspond to the kind of things that he's looking for in those who truly belong to him. The firstly, you know and are known by him. That secondly, you treasure and value his presence. And thirdly, that you're a person who wants to do his father's will. And I want us to just think about those three things today. First of all, Jesus wants you to know him and to be known by him. What does he mean? He says to this person, I never knew you. It's the worst kind of put down, isn't it? To say you don't even know me or something like that. I never knew you, he says. What does it mean to know God? I think it's easier if we start with what it doesn't mean. This knowledge, first of all, is not an intellectual knowledge. I think it's important. You know me. You know that I love um, studying the Bible. I love theology. I'm not the kind of person that is fashionable today to disparage any of that stuff. But Jesus says it absolutely is not enough to pretend that you know God because you know things about him. I had too much exposure and experience with people who, who know a great deal more than I do about this book, but whose lives denied what it has to say. Intellectual knowledge is not enough. Let me read to you a description of a fruit. you see where we're going. This fruit is round to oval, single-seeded berry. 
three to six centimeters long, three to four centimeters broad, um, born in loose pendant clusters of 10 to 20 together. The leathery skin is reddish and covered with fleshly pliable spines, hence the name which means hairs. The fruit flesh, which is actually the aril, is translucent, whitish, or very pale pink, with a sweet, mildly acidic flavor, very reminiscent of grapes. Does anyone know? Close? It's actually a rambutan. If you're not from Southeast Asia, then you probably have no idea what a rambutan is. But it's basically a lychee with spikes. They do taste slightly different. Do you guys get it? Never mind. Uh, (laughs) My point is this. You can have all the, the Wikipedia, that was from Wikipedia, descriptions in the world about everything, including God. You can probably just Google God and find out what it has to say about him. And it doesn't mean you know him. It doesn't mean you know what a rambutan tastes like or even really looks like unless you go Google image it right now. Even then, that's not enough, is it? To have actually tasted, peeled, experienced, had it dripping down your beard. (laughs) He doesn't mean knowing about God. Secondly, doesn't mean experiencing God. Now, this is maybe slightly more pointed and and difficult for us to, to, to understand and to accept. I think it's possible to have experiences of God and not know God. You think about Jesus' own followers. Judas had more experiences of Jesus than most of us have ever had, right? Did it mean that he was saved? Did it mean that he really knew Jesus in this sense? No, it didn't mean that at all. In Hebrews 6, he describes it in this way. He says, it's impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, so they've, they've had some kind of enlightening experience, some kind of moment. And so they've tasted the heavenly gift, he says. In other words, they've had some experience of the Holy Spirit. And it says they've shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. I don't think this person, this is describing a Christian. I think it's describing a person who's had experiences of God. They've been to church The Holy Spirit has done remarkable things. I remember when I was a kid, we had an assembly. I went to a Christian school. And it was around the early 90s when um, the Holy Spirit was doing really strange things in churches. And I went to an assembly. And then weird stuff started happening. And people started crying and weeping. And some of the guys there, they had snot pouring down their faces onto the floor. It, it, It looked a lot like the descriptions you get of revival when you read the old books. And, uh... Unfortunately, some of those guys forgot that experience as quickly as they had it. Experience isn't enough either. Intellectual knowledge isn't enough. Experience isn't enough. Because neither of these things goes deep enough to address the root of the issue. When Jesus says, I never knew you, I don't think he's just talking about an intellectual knowledge of you. Or an emotional experience of you. He's talking about something more profound. Ephesians 2 says this. It's describing people who are not Christians. It says this. That you were dead in the trespasses or the sins and the sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What it's saying, if I can put it in a nutshell, 
that everybody who is not known by Christ is an enemy of Christ. He says they are children of wrath, which is just to say that whilst God loves the world, so much that he gave Jesus for the world, he also counts those who are not part of his family as being like an enemy to him. Think of it this way. Imagine you were on death row in a country where they do have the death penalty. I know in the States, for example, if you're on death row, you can be there for years and years and years as this thing goes through the court time and time again and all kinds of stuff happens around it. And over the years, if you're in one prison, you might get to know your guards. You might know them by, on first name terms. You might even think of them as your friends. You maybe know what their children's names are. You may know what they do on a Saturday night when they want to chill with their mates. You laugh with them, you joke with them, and they know all about you also. You have nothing to hide, no one to impress. You know each other. There's still going to come a day when your guard is going to take you by the arm and march you down that corridor and strap you to the chair and put a line into your arm where they can inject you with a lethal dose of poison. However you feel about that relationship with him, He's still your enemy. And God says that that's how it is with mankind. People grope towards him and they think that they have a relationship with him. But he says, unless something very deep happens, in other words, your status changes. Like the person on death row, if they were to go back before a judge and their case is thrown out and they were acquitted of their crime. Unless that has happened to you, which is a momentary thing, a one-off thing that happens in your life. It can never be repeated or undone. Unless that has happened to you, then you are still God's enemy, no, no matter how much you've experienced or known about him. He goes on in Ephesians 2 and says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He's using the language, it's described in many different ways in the New Testament, but it's basically saying that when you come to know Jesus, something miraculous happens in you that can never be undone or reversed. And before that, you're his enemy, and then you're his friend. In the next book in Colossians, No, it's not the next book. Too long. Colossians 1. He puts it like this. He, that's God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And the Bible talks about knowing God. When Jesus says, I never knew you, he means it on this profound level that something has changed in your very being to transfer you from one kingdom to another, from death to life, from enemy to friend. And you may then come back to me and say, well, how could I ever know that this is true of me? If you're saying my knowledge isn't enough, if you're saying my experience isn't enough, how can this be true of me? And that would be a long conversation I want to have with you. I think most of the time, if you know know Jesus and the gospel and you profess him, then most of the time you are saved. Here's one of the things that you might look for. That whilst you 
can not only or may not even be able to think about a single moment in your life when you came to faith, when this happened to you because it was a gradual thing or something you don't remember because you're so young. I think nevertheless that a person who is now a friend of God will have an experience of deepening knowledge of him in the day to day. It says of Abraham in the Old Testament that he was God's friend. They used to speak face to face. And I think that a Christian who has every much right to know God as Abraham did should be able to say, God is my friend in that sense. I have no fear of judgment. I know him through his son Jesus. It says of Enoch that he walked with God And then he was not. It's a Hebrew way of describing a life that's lived moment by moment. Seeking to honor and love and bless the holy God. To walk with him. And friend, if that is not your experience. That you are not a person who is a friend of God. Who is walking with God. Then I'd say you very much need to question whether you are known by Christ. And whether you know Christ. But if that is your experience. Please don't take this in the wrong way, what I'm saying today. You must take comfort. That's the first thing. He wants to know you and to be known by you. Secondly is this. Jesus wants you to treasure his presence. He goes on. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, he says. This is the second part of his judgment. And I think it's odd. Why does this judgment strike us as odd? Consider it like this. Think about it this way. The person that he's speaking to never valued the presence of God in the first place. What did they value? They describe it there, how they valued prophecy and casting out demons and working miracles, which we could describe like this. This kind of a person looks at religion and asks the the pragmatic question, does it work and is there power? It's all about the pragmatic, it's not about the personal. It's not about a relationship with God. So this person never valued God's presence in the first place because the only question they were ever asking was what works. And I think that's probably the most perfect description of what we're seeing all around us in society at large in terms of its approach to religion. People are only asking the question, what works? That's why we like to have a little bit of Kabbalah Judaism on the one hand, a little bit of Buddhist uh, transcendental meditation A little bit of yoga, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And what we end up with is whatever makes us feel good, whether it's some psychology or something. And Jesus is very much putting this person on the spot here. A person who only ever asks what works and uncovering the deeper issue that they never valued the presence of God in the first place. Now the Bible teaches us some incredibly important truths about God's presence. In particular, that we enjoy the presence of God, believer or unbeliever alike, all of the time. We know that God is present everywhere in all things. But do you realize that he's present in a very active way, upholding all things by the word of his power? That's scriptural language. It means this. That even the most dark heart, the most far unbeliever, does not realize how much of the presence of God that they're enjoying in day-to-day life. That he's supplying their breath. That he's supplying the food they eat. That he's giving them what the theologians call common grace. That there's a goodness of God that flows out to all people whether or not they realize it, whether or not they acknowledge it. Now here's the thing about gifts that you receive when you never ask for them. As a song puts it, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. 
Then we've fasted, for example. Isn't it the strangest thing that when you decide to give up food for a while, you start craving things even five minutes into fasting like you've never craved them before? You just desperately want a slice of toast. And you never really give much thought to toast the rest of the time. But suddenly you wake up, you've decided to to give up food for the day, and you just feel hungry. Some of you are looking with blank stares, which means you've never fasted in your life, have you? (laughs) Or if you're thirsty, the idea of a drop of water on your tongue just becomes so tantalizing. Or if you've ever been in a situation where for whatever reason you can't breathe, whether you're choking on food and someone has to whack you on the back, or maybe you've been out in the sea, you know, when, when you wipe out under a wave, a strong wave, and it holds you down in the turbulence underneath the wave, it can sometimes only be for a few seconds, but it feels like an eternity. Because all you can think about is getting that next breath of oxygen. Now, I bet most of us came into, woke up and come to church and have not given a second thought to oxygen today. It's just there, isn't it? You just take it for granted. The presence of God is very much like that. That even the darkest, most hardened enemy of God is enjoying the oxygen of his presence, upholding their very life by his word all of the time. And our fundamental problem as humanity is our ingratitude. Because we don't know how much we rely on him. And for the Christian, the idea of being cast out from God's presence in the way that Jesus is describing here, depart from me, is the most frightening judgment you could ever hear. Do you remember how after David sins with Bathsheba, sleeps with her and then arranges for her husband to die? In Psalm 51, when he's voicing his repentance... He says in verse 11, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. We're getting an insight into David's deepest fear, which is that suddenly he would be a castaway, an exile from the presence of God. In an earlier psalm, Psalm 32, which is also one of his psalms of repentance, he describes it like this. He says, Let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. He's saying for as long as you can consciously and deliberately be thankful for the presence of God in his favor on your life, then do so because when the waters come, the time has run out. When the flood washes over you and you are held down in the turbulence and all you can think about is to have one gasp of oxygen, it's too late. The presence of God has been taken away. The reason why I'm making this, I'm saying this so, so forcefully and strongly is because I think a lot of people think that God's judgment is a joke. A lot of people imagine that when Christians are talking about the judgment of God, that we're, we're describing what the medievals painted in their paintings, and it's something that, that, that's a subject of much hilarity and mockery. I don't know what judgment is going to look like or feel like. I think a lot of the language in the Bible is meant to be metaphorical and imagery. But the one thing we can say is this, that the presence of God in this way, the presence of God to bless 
is going to be removed. It's going to be like all the oxygen sucked out of the room. And what you once took for granted will no longer be there. And there is no prospect of joy, no prospect of love, no prospect of thankfulness. Nothing that you now enjoy will be there. So for us as Christians, we don't walk in ingratitude or taking for granted the presence of Christ. On the contrary, we treasure it. Here's the third thing. Jesus wants you to obey his Father. He began by describing those who say, Lord, Lord, saying they they won't enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he closes off and says, I never knew, depart from me. What? You workers of lawlessness. A worker of lawlessness is somebody who, who doesn't pay any attention to the will of God, who has no care or any regard for God's will. Now, right away I need to say, That whilst Christ calls his people towards perfection, he never expects it as a qualification for being one of his people. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he says things like this in chapter 5. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus says, in other words, Christianity is only for people who recognize that they're abject failures. That ought to bring a warm glow to every heart here because we know it's true of us, don't we? Christianity is for those who recognize that they are sick and that they need the healing powers of Christ to come and mend them in the deepest part. However, nor does Jesus teach that you can be a Christian and simply carry on and do whatever you want in your life. With no regard for the will of God. I was saying a minute ago that these people, they're really only interested in what works. That's why they're so, so impressed with themselves that they prophesied and they exorcised and they, they did mighty works. Because they were only ever interested really in a selfish orientation of what religion is. In other words, what it can do in and through me. How I can be powerful they've never been cured of that fundamental selfishness that our hearts are turned in on themselves now I ask you I know it sounds when Jesus is saying here he's describing them as lawless people or people who didn't do God's will it can sound a lot like the kinds of things which I constantly lambast like anti-grace, legalism, works righteousness, the kind of thing where people say the way to be saved is through obedience. It sounds a bit like that, but it isn't that. What it is rather is that if you think about it, is there any other way of loving God than by obeying him? You and I, friends, we know that we're called to be God's servants, God's children, God's friends. And too often in Christian circles, when we celebrate the gospel, the gospel that Christ died for us, took our sins upon him in order to give us his salvation as a free gift, 
a lot of people then, then set up the grace of God in opposition to obedience. As though the two things are, are mutually cancelling, that they cancel one another out. You can either have grace or you can have obedience. And the Bible doesn't say that at all. It says that God's given you grace to save you and grace to fuel your obedience. This is why I began the service reading to you from John 15, which says this. He says, if you keep my commandments, is Jesus speaking, you will abide in my love. Love and obedience for Christ are not two things in tension with each other or two things butting heads with each other. They're two things in wonderful complementarity with each other. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So if you're still skeptical of what I'm saying, think about Jesus himself and what he says of himself here. Christ, our model, does not consider it a burden or a legalistic thing or a hard thing to offer himself repeatedly, repeatedly to the Father in perfect obedience to the will of God. He says things like this, I only do what I see the Father doing. So whenever you think, or whenever you hear someone say, that to be urged to obey is to suddenly set up a new kind of legalism in Christianity, then friends, that is a lie. Jesus obeyed. He delighted to obey the Father. And my encouragement to you as brothers and sisters is never to think of your obedience in a negative light. And if you're struggling with some sin here, and you're finding yourself constantly torn. And you've not known how to reconcile this. Yes, Jesus forgives me. And he, keeps, he keeps washing me clean. But I keep wanting to go back to my sin. And, and you find yourself justifying that. And saying, well, he'll be gracious. He'll forgive me. Can I say, friend, that that's not walking in love. I think even the most loose-minded Christian knows that our greatest call is to love the Lord God. But listen, he wants to be loved on the terms that he has set. And he says, to love me is to obey my commandments. If nothing else motivates you to walk in purity, let that be your motivation. That the call to love God is the spur to walk in obedience. It needn't be any more complex than that. And all you need to do is come to him again today and say, Father... I want you to forgive me and now I want to offer myself to you again and not walk in tension with your will anymore. I want to walk in obedience as my act of devotion and love and worship. I want to close with just a few simple contrasts then for you as we're thinking about what Jesus is saying here. I think that the distinction he's setting up here is between a person who is a Christian because it works in the sense that they experience something of the power of God. You know, the prophecy, the demons, the mighty works. Over against a person who is a Christian because of devotion to God himself. It's pragmatism versus the personal love for the living God. And here are some of the differences. One is, one perspective is pointing inwards. Your faith is really about you, and the other is pointing upwards. Your faith is about him. One perspective is about self-worship because the Christian faith was only ever about what it gave you and the other is about true devotion. A devotion that can call on any part of your life and Christ can say, I want you to lay it down 
I want you to lay that down, however hard. One is about power, success, victory. And the other is about love and the knowledge of God and holiness. It's my prayer and my hope that none of us will ever hear these words from Jesus. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But I've met far too many people who are church-going people but obviously don't know Christ to ever pull back from telling you the truth of what he's saying here. He wants you to walk with him, to know him, to love his presence and to walk in a holiness that is sprung from the salvation that he's given to you. We're going to respond with communion. And I think there's probably two ways in which we can take this. If you're a Christian, and everything I've said, you've said a hearty amen to, and you know that the Holy Spirit is just affirming that you are his child, then the way in which we take communion is as a celebration in gratitude. Let's not take his oxygen, his presence for granted, but keep bringing ourselves back to the cross, eating the bread, drinking the wine, aware that the presence of God that we enjoy, his favor upon our life, the fact that we know him, the fact that he's changed us and made us more like himself, is never to be taken for granted and always something we should give thanks for. That's one way we can take it. And those of you who have sat here today and thinking, I'm not sure I've ever been a Christian. Maybe you want to take it for the first time today. If you pray, Jesus, I ask you to save me. Maybe you don't want to take it because you're not sure that you belong as yet. But you still want to pray. And I want to just say a quick prayer right now for those of you in that category. And I want to ask that God's going to do something special in your heart. You can pray along with me. You can kind of agree with me and you can say amen at the end. But let's all just bring ourselves to him again. Lord Jesus, when we, when we read this word and we recognize the reality of who you are, Lord, I, I'm so sad to say that too often we do not fear you in the way that we should. I know that for us as Christians, there ought to never be a fear of punishment. Because your love has cast out fear, because you've punished our sins on the cross. But Lord, there's those of us here, potentially Lord, who have not walked with you, and yet have not, and have taken for granted this salvation that you offer. And I ask, Lord God, that even today, as we reflect on what it is that you want of your people, that you would raise hearts from the dead. That you would lift off the burden of sin and put it on the cross. That you would raise us into heavenly places, as it says in Ephesians. That maybe for the first time, people here would say, I now know Christ. I know that I know him. Maybe for the first time they will recognize that, Lord, religion is not about power. It's about your presence. It's about knowing you.
And Lord, where there's been those who have walked in continuous, determined unwillingness to surrender their life to you in every part, I ask, Lord God, that you'd help us all to lay our lives before you today in fresh devotion, in fresh obedience, that it could never be said of us that we have not done the will of the Father, that it could never be said of us that we are workers of lawlessness, but rather, Lord, that our lives would be, yes, an imperfect, but nevertheless a full act of devotion to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.